place to start. Um, there is a sutta, uh, and I'm not sure where it is, but it's possibly in the Angatara, and it's uh, basically there is always a practice. There is the fast and hard, the fast and easy, the slow and hard, and the slow and easy. Huh. Now, um, the fast and slow versus uh, uh, has a set of criteria for it, and the easy and hard has a set of criteria for it. What makes it easy or hard is um, the development through the second noble truth to understand um, in order to remove, remove the greed and the ill will and the delusion about it. So if a meditator wants to be enlightened and is practicing in order to become enlightened, that's going to be a slow process. Sure. Or actually, it's going to be, sorry, got it backwards. It's going to be a difficult process. It's going to be painful because he's not getting what he wants, and so he continues to want more and more. Or if we uh, don't like things and want to put up with it, then, uh, and don't want to put up with it, then that's also going to make things slow. An example of that is in the Goenka retreats, they have a, uh, a, uh, a practice Towards the end of the retreat, after the students have been sitting for so long that they've already built up all their aches and pains, but they've also built up some tolerance for it. And then they have what is called a long de or strong determination system that you strongly determine that you're going to keep your eyes closed, your hands still, your body erect, and uh, uh, the legs crossed until the end of the hour. Okay. And here's what's the problem with that is, is that that hour is the longest hour. It is, I mean, the only longer hour could be is if you were on a crucifix or being waterboarded or something like that. <laughs> okay. It's long and slow that, that the mind's idea of time stretches out. So things get really, really slow. Um, but, uh, when it's fast, that means that we're taking it easy. We're not wanting anything and we're allowing ourselves to be comfortable. And so the time is different sure. that in fact, even Einstein knew about this as kind of a joke his way, but he's absolutely spot on. When someone asked him to um, give a user's working definition of the theory of relativity, right? You know, Einstein and the theory of relativity and all of the math and all of the uh, physics that goes into that. And he gave an in, a simple answer in the sense that when you're sitting with a pretty girl on the couch for an hour, it feels like a minute. <laughs> but if you've got your hand caught in a, a binder or on uh, if, uh, on a hot surface with your hand on this hot stove, that minute seems like an hour. That's funny. 
<laughs> okay. So this is actually uh, uh, not only wisdom known by uh, Einstein, it was wisdom known by the Buddha also. That if we are in greed and ill will and delusion, then it's going to be slow. Or excuse me. Uh, it's going to be a hard practice. It's going to be difficult to bear. The other side of it is, is that if we are going to be developing the skills that are needed, uh, the five aggregates balanced and the, uh, the five aggregates of the five faculties to be balanced are actually the Eightfold Noble Path of the, of the skills that are be developed. The Eightfold Noble Path shows itself in uh, the five faculties. It shows itself in the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what that means then is that the four uh, aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path then are brought to bear. And as we're bringing them to bear and developing them, we develop them in a kind of balanced way. And then the fulfillment of that would be the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening is after the balance and after the skills are developed. Gotcha. And, and if we develop these skills, then our progress is going to be fast. And if we don't develop these skills, then it's going to take a long, long, long time. And if you uh, don't develop the skills and are um, also wanting a whole lot of stuff from your meditation is going to be a long slow practice sure and uh and not only long and slow but painful it's going to be a difficult practice because we're wanting things that we don't have and putting up with things that we don't want and so we want to kind of balance the factors so that we can come out of our greed and ill will and also develop the skills that we need. And so we can go back then to talk about the five uh, faculties as the Eightfold Noble Path in the sense that um, the word Samadhi is in fact one of the faculties to be developed. But if we look at that from the perspective of uh, the Eightfold Noble Path, we find out that that's not concentration that concentration is something dif different. In fact, there's two kinds of concentration that we will uh, uh, use. One of the ways of concentrating is by coming back and coming back and coming back, repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. So basically when, we, when the teacher would tell the kids to concentrate on their work, if he is telling them to keep going and to come back and to keep doing it and to keep plodding along, then that is uh, correct. Uh, but if our word for concentration has to do with working hard, knitting our brow, uh, and trying really hard, working really hard, then that kind of concentration is not what the Buddha is talking about at all. Sure. And so actually the word samadhi is it's not a good definition to translate the word samadhi into concentration. 
but rather it is best defined as a unified mind. If the mind is samadhi, that means it is unified, collected, whole, and not scattered or in parts. Okay, another way of using uh, samadhi would be in the sense of the factors of the Eightfold Noble Path that are the skills to be developed is when we bring those skills together. Okay, like an automobile, if you've got the car parts all over the yard, it's not much of an automobile. Sure, yep. Because it doesn't fill the purpose of an automobile. But if you can take those parts and put them back into the correct parts of position and order, and uh, they're functioning in relationship to the other parts of the design of the car, now you've got a car. So the car is actually only a car when it's a samati, sure. when it's gathered together. Now, we use the word car nowadays, but in the old days, they had it as a chariot. But there's actually no chariot there with just, just the parts. That in fact, the parts coming together is, is more of a mental thing than it is a physical thing. In the sense that if, you, if you've got all of those chariot parts, but you don't know what to do with them, then you're not going to get it together to make a chariot. So the sure. chariot in the mind comes first. And so we recognize the parts and how they put it together, and then the actual physical chariot comes second, that the mind is the form runner in all ways. And so getting the mind unified is the way to go. And so this is what we mean in uh, the balancing of the factors of samadhi, means not so much that the mind is already unified, but that we're in the process of gathering the factors together. Now, another item on the five aggregates is um, what is called uh, in the Pali, Shada or Shrada. It's actually with the R's in the Sanskrit. So in uh, the, the Shada, that actually is translated wrongly into English as faith. But it's not faith at all that we're adding to the thing. That's what Christians do. And look what Christianity has come up with. Okay, yeah. a bunch of magical beliefs and that whole bunch of faith about stuff. But Shraddha is really more about confidence. Now, confidence also has the quality of attitude. That if you've got confidence that you have the attitude that you can, in fact, do it. And if you have no confidence, then you have the attitude you can't do it. So this confidence uh, point that we're talking about actually then is the distinction between being a loser and being a winner and that attitude. Now, we are all born with the attitude of being a victim. Every young infant the first thing they, uh, the doctor does is try to get that infant to breathe. And they normally do it by letting out a yell. I remember when mine happened. That doctor grabbed me by the heels and busted my butt, and I let out a yell, and they didn't stop screaming for 35 years. <laughs> right? Victim. Victim. Yeah. 
Okay. Anything that I don't like, I got to let out a yell about it. I want help. I want to uh, protest, et cetera, like that. This is the victim's mentality. But when we have confidence, then we can shut up because I'm okay. Sure. <laughs> and, we, and so we don't complain anymore because we've got the confidence that we can handle the situation without having to get some god or some teacher or some bully or some cop or some daddy to come help us because we can't do it ourselves. We're a victim or some meditation teacher. You know, that the, there's a whole long list of the helpers out there sure. and the victim will try them all rather than doing the one that is really negative, and that is just to fix the problem yourself. But they don't have the confidence that they can do that. Yeah. And so this is one of the faculties. Now, that's actually related to the Eightfold Noble Path directly in the form of the Sama Sankapa, which is uh, uh, better translated. Um, when it's translated as right thought, it misses the point. When it's translated as right intention, it's getting closer. And that's often the uh, the translation is right intention. But another translation that I'm using here is right attitude. Okay. Okay. That we have to actually develop the right attitude. Now, how do we do that? That's where the Eightfold Noble Path really comes in to shine. Now, another item on the five faculties is investigation, which is exactly what we're going to be doing. And guess what? So is sati. Sati is one of the five faculties. Well, now we're looking directly now at the But we have to balance these factors. And so the sati needs to become uh, let us say, available whenever we need it. That in fact, that's what's beginning to happen to you is you're beginning to wake up slowly or occasionally you're waking up and then you're taking a look at what's going on. But then immediately what happens to the, uh, the normal human is that then they reflect in that mirror of, oh, look how long it's been since I had last woken up Ain't I a bad human being? This is hard work. And we take on that victim's position right then and there, simply because we did wake up and take a look. But then we went back into it again in the sense of uh, not coming back to the object. That in fact, Gowanka has a statement that he uses on a regular basis. When the mind wanders away from the breath, Never mind, start again, start again, right? That never mind is what we're talking about here. Never mind that the mind had wandered away. Now that you recognize that the mind has wandered away from the breath, probably into some unwholesome stuff, we can recognize we have to take the right effort right then and there to come back and start again, as opposed to complaining about how I didn't start again before. And how hard it's going to be to start again in the future. So we have to actually practice starting again, starting again, to wake up and to recognize that the mind has wandered away. Never mind, let's come back and start again. That's a very so good point, because I'm definitely of the habit to 
to mind. So, uh, mm-hmm. it's a good point. Yes, it's very common. And why is that? It's that instead of taking the concept of the Eightfold Noble Path as, as skills to be developed in this moment, we set them up as rules that you should do. And now yeah. here you are not doing it. And so this creates a conflict in the mind that you set a rule thou shalt sati, and now you <laughs> wandered away and you're not sati. Okay, and so that creates that um, dichotomy in the mind, and the mind is in that moment not unified because it's not following the rule, or you just caught yourself not following the rule and got to do a little bit of punishment and then a little bit of victimhood because you got punished. And now we're back in the same old stuff again. So the sati that we had was not strong enough to be real sati because the real sati takes the effort to come out of that cycle. Sure. And to come back, never mind, and actually start again. That makes sense. The value is mm-hmm. in the starting again. Then value is is to actually take the right effort into making a change. That's where the real value comes, is to take the effort to make a change. Now, there is a whole lot of stuff in our society that's built around you can't change. And in fact, many situations are set up to where they, whoever they are, don't want you to change. They don't want you to grow up. They don't want you to recognize that they're lying to you. Yep. And so Christianity is like that. The whole basis of Christianity is is that you need their plastic Jesus. You can't drive your pickup truck by yourself. You have to have the plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard of your truck. Are you going to crash into a tree? You can't watch where you're going on your own. Exactly. That's huh. the metaphor of Christianity is, is that you're not good enough. They have uh, uh, supporting stuff like original sin. Hey, dude, you were broken. How can you possibly get fixed? The other one, oh, you, were, you were made broken. You were ill-formed from the beginning. You've got an original sin. You can blame Adam for it. And so uh, that idea also is in uh, the New Testament in the form of uh, who are you to be good? Only God is good. The, the interesting you must thing take is, Jesus as your savior. If you take Jesus as your savior, then you can be saved. And so everybody has that little ritual. They go talk to the preacher, and then on Sunday night at the Baptist church, they'll have a little baptism or a big baptism service, and everybody's happy. And on Monday morning, that new Christian, he doesn't know what to do. So he goes back and does what he's been doing before, and they wind up being Sunday Christians. Sure. And in fact, the worst case scenario would be the, uh, uh, the well-known scientist perhaps with a Nobel Prize in physics, and yet he's still a Christian. And they, they're just completely incompatible. How can he have such a dichotomy in his mind when the, the Christianity is talking about sky daddies 
and he knows for sure the only thing up there are satellites. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting how much of an impact that has on, on a person, even if you don't grow up immersed in the religion. It's part of the culture almost. It's it's kind of interwoven. Right. Let us say that the Christians live in a salt mine and everybody else lives in an ocean. The ocean is salty. We can't get away from the Christianity. It is so deeply buried into the culture that we live in. And that gives rise then to the four uh, grip. Okay, let me talk to you about that just a little bit. Everybody in the grip wants you to stay the way that you are so that they can control you. They don't want you to change. Grab, which is government, religion, education, and business. Big business does not want you to change without buying their product. You have permission to change only after you get what they have to sell, whether you want it or not. Yeah. So you're a snot-nosed kids until you buy Kleenex, right? <laughs> All right. Or you can't have a girl until you buy our car. I'm sorry, what'd you say? I'm definitely gonna steal the phrase grab. I like that. Uh-huh. And education, they, they say you can't change, you can't get an education without us. We're going to educate you. You can't do it on your own. Well, that was hard to do way back when the kid didn't leave town, or in fact, he didn't even live in a town. He didn't know what a town was. He'd never been to one and never seen a book. And so we can say that, yes, there is the thread or the, the root of education or the seed of education. But now that we've got the Internet, who needs a university? And the universities are figuring that out, that people can get educated without big education. Yep. And guess what? A lot of the education that you received, you don't need. Why didn't you just learn what you really needed to know and not worry about all the stuff that you weren't interested in, didn't care about, and go into a great deal of suffering when you were forced to learn something that you don't want to know? Yep. Some students are like that in music. They hate that music class, and they don't want to be there. And some of the students are really going to get a kick out of it. Do you want all of those students in your band? It'll be a better band if it's a smaller band. Let the kids who don't want to play go home. Yeah. But no, this is music class. You got to be here. Or whatever. So this is education for you. And then we have uh, government. And, and government is that you, they want your vote. And, and, uh, or at least they want your cooperation. They want your silence. Which means that you've got to believe what they're saying. You've got to take it in. You can't change it. You can't investigate it. You cannot see that um, that is a psychological uh, mental issue when you are racist and misogynist. Yeah. But they, the government capitalizes on that big time. Okay. Yeah. In the sense that, oh, you're misogynist, oh, you're uh, racist, come vote for uh, the big R, the racist party, and thou shalt be saved. We'll take over government that way. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Or the other side is working with the greed. Oh, if you vote for us, we'll build you a new whoop-de-dah. We'll give you some cash. We'll make things easier for you. And so you can see that politics is built on greed and ill will, either side or the other, and everybody is ignorant to that. And that's how governments work, to keep you stuck in whatever you want. In other words, if you are greedy, they want you to stay greedy and stay greedy and stay greedy. If you are racist and hateful, then they want you to stay that way. Then, in fact, the, uh, the issue about Roe versus Wade is backfiring. That the, so long as the Republicans had that as an issue, they were fine. They could run with it. But when they got what they wanted, it was very much like the dog that caught the bus. What's the, what's the dog going to do now that he's caught the bus? Yeah. <laughs> and so by getting the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade in the way that they did, that's caused the Republican Party a great deal of discomfort. Lost a major because, issue, yeah. Right, it's a major issue. And when people figure out that they're causing more harm, see, as long as it's a mental situation, oh, thou shalt not have a, uh, uh, an abortion, that everybody has a right to life. But when you put that into practice, they find out that actually it's a medical issue and it's none of the government's business what that medical issue is. But this is why they want they don't want you to change. And so that was a bad idea for them to actually pass that legislation, because now that opens things up to where people got to look and some of them are going to change. Yeah, so that's the government. Now let's go for religion, the great big guy, because they for sure were the ones who built all of this stuff. Yeah, if you can't change. You, if you're going to be saved, you've got to buy our plastic Jesus. It's going to cost you dearly, but you've got to have it. Otherwise, you're just going to go from one wreck to another. Your life's going to be terrible. And so that's where it's set up. The Greb teaches us that you can't change. And they bring up all kinds of stuff. In fact, that's what rebirth and reincarnation in Asia is all about. Oh, if you do bad now, you're going to get caught for it much later. Even though you're dead and buried, the common machine is going to dig you up just to kick your ass. Well, guess what? Yeah. We change on a regular basis anyway. The things are built on change. The guy who did the deed is not the guy who's thinking about having done the deed. It's true. That when he did the deed, he was really angry. After he's done the deed, now he's remorseful. Or maybe he's afraid of getting caught. But the mind state has changed. It's not the same guy with the same feelings. And so when we recognize that we go around changing quite a bit, instead of changing just in our cesspool, why don't we change to come out of it? Instead of changing which part of the mirror we're looking at, let's turn around and see reality. And so this is what the, the right effort of the Eightfold Noble Path is all based upon, is taking the right effort to make a change for the wholesome, to make things better inside the mind. So we're not here to tweak a piece of electronics or fix a car or whatever. We're here to fix the mind, which surprisingly enough is a whole lot easier to fix than a car. Sure. Except that the car 
breaks down quite often, but not near as often as the mind does. And so we need a fix or repair daily. We need to have a forward mind. It has to be fixed and repaired every day over and over and over again until we eventually get it right. But this is what we mean by practice or repetition. We have to keep fixing the mind because it keeps going back into the, uh, the old ways of doing things. And we have to remember to change, to come out of that over and over and over and over again. Now, when we begin to develop that over and over and over again quality of, of sati, then is when it is, comes fulfilled as a factor of an, of, uh, as a Sambhajana means factors of awakening. It's been labeled as the factors of enlightenment. I don't even know why the word enlightenment has been plastered all over Buddhism, because the, the age of enlightenment was a war between religion and science. Sure. Okay, but the kind of enlightenment that is associated with Buddhism is to quit the war. There is no war between science and, and religion. That one's fake and the other one is real. Let's start looking at the real instead of having a war between the two. Yeah. Come out of a war. See things correctly. So, um, the word enlightenment, though, does have a quality to it. In fact, it's got two qualities based upon the word light. And this is exactly the way that the Buddha teaches that we fulfill the seven factors of awakening for knowledge and deliverance. Well, knowledge is one kind of light. Enlightenment means to see it, to have the light of day, to open up and take a look, shine a light on this thing, let's yeah. by the torch. Okay, let's see what's going on. So that's the first part of the process is to wake up and see what's going on. And then the second part is the deliverance from that. And the, the analogy is, is that um, you've got a, a really heavy backpack and the, and the backpack is really, really heavy. And we keep carrying this backpack around because we're supposed to. And then when we get to school, we open the bag and find out that one of our friends, a joker, has put a great big brick in that backpack. If we had looked at the backpack, we would have seen the brick without having to carry it around. So now that we see the brick, we're delivered from that brick and we can set it down. We don't have to carry it around. Now, the important point to recognize is we're the one who picked up the brick and put it in the backpack. But then we forgot that it was me who did it. Sure. Yeah. So another example is imagine that you've got a backpack or a bag and you're going walking down the beach. And this is a pristine beach that hasn't had a bunch of garbage wash up on it. And it's also a beach where people haven't been for a while. Maybe it's COVID or something. And so now we're walking down the beach and we find a really beautiful shell. So well, this is a keeper. And so we put it in the backpack. And then a few steps later, we find a better shell. So we put that in the backpack. And as we're going down, we find a conch and we find uh, 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 all kinds of uh, things that are. And now we've got the backpack full of baubles that we kept up on the beach. The question is, are we going to sit down and sort through this stuff and see again which now is valuable 
are we going to keep a hold of it with the same thought that we did when we first saw it and grabbed it? And yeah. so this is another way we have to go inspect all the stuff that we've collected together and, and decide that I'm going to lighten the load. I'm going to take some of this stuff out and put it away. Like my old argument with my granny, I can just drop that. I don't need to carry that around. Or that time when that bully beat me up, but I could just drop that. I don't have to carry that memory around. Sure. Huh. All right. So uh, the knowledge and the deliverance is the enlightenment. So the second kind of enlightenment is it's not heavy. It's light. Why is it light? It's because we put it down. Here's an example of that. How heavy is this coffee cup? Influences. Ask how much it weighed. I ask how heavy is it? Sure. Don't know. Okay. Guess what? The longer we hold it, the heavier it gets. The longer we hold the cup, the heavier it gets. And that's true also with the baggage that we're carrying around in the mental backpack. The longer we carry and keep putting stuff in there over and over again, the heavier it gets until we recognize, hey, I don't have to be holding this coffee cup. I can set it down. But if I'm afraid somebody's going to take the cup, then I'm going to hang on to it. And I want it. I want this coffee cup. That dog is going to bite that cup if I don't keep it. And so we have that kind of fear that's based in it. And so we keep things, we keep them close when in fact it winds up being unnecessary mental baggage. And so coming back then to how do we get that is with the seven factors of enlightenment, which starts with what is called unremitting sati. Now, the funny thing about this sati is, is that it's all over the place. It's in so many suttas. It's in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's in the Anapana Sati Sutta name. It is one of the items on the Eightfold Noble Path, right? Noble Sati. It's also one of the faculties, Sati. It's also the number one item on the list in the seven factors of enlightenment. And here it's used as unremitting sati. Now, it does not mean permanent stuff sati. It means it's like the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps banging. It just keeps coming back. And it comes back just when we need it the most. Well, how can that be? Well, that's because we're practicing it. And how we practice it is mindfully breathing in or remembering to take a long breath and remembering to take a long out breath means that now we've done two satis in one breath. Mindfully we're breathing in and mindfully we're breathing out. And then with that mindfulness also to the fore in, in the present, now we can mindfully uh, investigate our thoughts, mindfully investigate the, the objects of the mind and the mind moment. And that what we're actually going to do is to change the mind moment thoughts, mindfully changing them from 
unwholesome to wholesome thoughts, which would mean to change them from unwholesome past thoughts and unwholesome future thoughts to drop the past. I mean, the past is really a burden. The best thing to do is to recognize, hey, I don't have to carry this backpack and I can just set the whole bag down. I don't even have to inspect anything. I can just throw it all out right now. Surprisingly enough, the backpack finds its way back on my shoulders, but I don't take it off again the next time I catch it there. This is every time you remember to, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we want to remember often. Sure. To remember often, to come back to the present moment, which means now to stop having discursive thoughts or ideas about things that are in the mind or reflective. Remember, we talked about a mirror when we first started talking today, okay? So that's the reflecting or the thinking about or checking it out versus another kind of thought, which is an observational thought. In other words, if you see a tree out with your eyes, you don't have to think of the word tree. You just see the object that, in fact, you can see a whole lot of stuff. And as you see it, you recognize that because there's a whole lot of stuff out there, if I describe that whole lot of stuff as an individual object that the eye can see, it would take me an hour to describe what it takes a tenth of a second to look at. Uh, yep. This is actually what they mean by a picture is worth a thousand words. Look how much discursive thought we would put into the instant of an image. And so if we start spending a lot of our time looking and seeing and, and investigating what we can see with our eyes, then that's a whole lot less time than we'll spend grinding some old thought down over and over and over again. The more time we listen, we spend more time actually listening and hearing. By listening and hearing, we um, are spending less time in thinking about what we're hearing. And we hear more of it. That this is one of the great values of music if you actually listen to the music. But now music has become kind of another background noise where people are not actually listening to it. Yeah, it's like a, a passive activity. Mm -hmm. So to give you an example of that, last night, uh, the Forza del Destimo by Verdi came up. And so I, I Googled it and I found several different recordings and started looking at it. Now here, the point is, is that Verdi was a, um, uh, a musician and composer in the late 18th, uh, late 1800s. And by the time that he was there, the tuba had been invented. Beethoven didn't have a tuba, but he had a timpani. I know I was a tuba player, so I know when that stuff happened and all of that. There's stories about my dad. I played tuba because my dad played tuba, and my dad played tuba uh, and wanted me to play tuba because he knew John Philip Sousa, who invented the sousaphone. Oh, that's cool. And so that's that trying to strange combination there. But the point is, is that um, I saw a, a, first the recording sounded really good. It was a recent recording, had a good tuba, all of that kind of stuff. But I knew that it wasn't the best recording. And then I found a really old recording back from the 1950s. They didn't have to have a tuba in that particular band. And it was also the technology of the 50s 
And so this particular piece of music had better quality of the higher register. You could hear the violins. You could hear all of the other uh, woodwinds and all of that kind of stuff to where the first recording was more uh, brass oriented just because of the way that it was done. And then I found yet another one. In fact, I started looking and listening to them until I found one that had a good enough recording that you could hear it all with. Okay, so how many people do that kind of listening? Sure, it's rare. Nobody does. They don't listen that way. They, uh, they don't listen as if they were sitting in the orchestra playing one of the musical instruments. But in fact, uh, La Forza del Destimo is one of the well-known pieces of music for tuba players, because it's got really good tuba in it. Da, 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 and then violence go to the da, 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 then violence go to the and so it's got a really excellent tuba part. And that band in the 1950s, they didn't have a tuba in it. It's like they missed the whole point, but they really had excellent quality for the higher register, where the other recording that I heard was all bass-oriented. And you can tell, actually, by the way the microphones are placed in the orchestra. But that was one of the things that was really interesting to me also, was recording an orchestra and where to put the microphones, how many do we have. The, uh, the worst possible one is the one where they put two microphones suspended, uh, let us say, above the first row of the audience. They think that they're going to get a good stereo reaction to that. That's really old mentality. Now we know that we want to put microphones on every instrument and have a really good uh, board so that we can uh, work with it and get the quality of every instrument because that's what your your ears, if you're sitting in the orchestra, will actually do. Sure. So this is just an example of actually listening rather than uh, just kind of ignoring all of the, what's going on. And when when one is listening to that kind of stuff, we're not thinking very much. We're just listening. And so, so go ahead. ahead. So when you do listen or see or you know you examine, and how do you how do you really determine an unwholesome thought from a wholesome? Some are obvious. Some are maybe not. Okay. The e the that's just okay. Here's a way of understanding right view of deciding by viewing what is worth viewing and what's not worth viewing or what is wholesome and not wholesome that's an important question to ask the actual answer has to do with this is a skill that has to be developed and over time you will begin to not only develop uh, the criteria for what's a wholesome and unwholesome thought but you'll be doing it much more often so that you'll quick catch those unwholesome thoughts very quickly. But there are some standards that we can set in the beginning or guidelines that we can have because there are some thoughts that are downright unwholesome. And we know it if we think about it, we can see it. An example of that is thoughts of doing harm to someone. 
thoughts of suing somebody, thoughts of breaking their arm, thoughts of telling them off, thoughts of winning an argument. These would be unwholesome thoughts, okay? Thoughts of revenge. Those would be unwholesome. Then we can also look at, well, those thoughts are almost always based in the past. That we take revenge over something that's not happening right now, but has happened already in the past. Sure. And so that's another criteria that we can use for what's wholesome and not wholesome is, is that if we're thinking about something that's already passed, if we're thinking about uh, something in the past, an unknown or let us say an unfinished project that needs to be finished, then that would be an unwholesome thought, especially if it's happening over and over and over again. An example of that is we will write an email four or five times before we even get to the computer to write it. Or in fact, when we do write it, we only write it one time. And the time that we do write it is not the same as those times that we were thinking about writing it. Yep. So thinking about writing it didn't do us a whole lot of good. And yet here we go about the future. So the past and the future are going to be good uh, points to think about. Is this worth thinking about? And the answer would be, um, oh, let us say an activity like doing a very sophisticated backup across a number of different hard drives. The time to think about that is when you're actually doing it. Thinking about the backup and I'm going to put some of the files from this drive onto that one, and these drives, this goes over here, and this is this topic, and all of that kind of stuff, is doing me no good or no value at all if I'm not actually doing it. Sure, yep. So thinking about doing something is different than actually doing it. So if you're actually doing something, then that's wholesome. And if you're thinking about doing it, then you're not enjoying the moment. You're worried about the future. I gotcha. That that makes sense. It okay. Yeah. All right. So then we can say, well, what's a, a wholesome thought? Guaranteed, a wholesome thought would be right now. There is nothing to do. Right now, there is no place to go. Right now, everything is okay. Everything is fine. That's the gladdening of the mind, and it's being in the present moment. Also having mind moments of watching the breath, experience the body breathing, experience the body becoming alive and vibrant while we're breathing, experiencing the body to wake it up to sensations so that we can experience the body the same way that we experience the eyes. And then the next one would be thoughts of um Relaxing the body. Thoughts of finding tensions and letting them relax. And then we would have also thoughts, wholesome thoughts of thoughts about safety. Right now, things are safe. Right now, I'm secure. Right now, there is no gorillas at the door. There is no boogeyman in the closet. There is no bear under the bed. I mean, these are the kinds of children's things, but children get afraid of that kind of stuff, and they don't even know where the fear comes from. And so we have to basically talk ourselves into feeling safe and secure by recognizing the reality is 
right now we're safe and secure. Never mind the future. We don't know what the future is going to be. Mm. And so villains who have done something wrong are afraid of getting caught when, in fact, they can enjoy this present moment. Well, he has the man hasn't come yet. I can I'm relaxed. I can just sit here. But, oh, no, we get all worried about getting punished for the wrongdoing. OK, so that's another one to say is, is that let's keep our mind away from wrongdoing either in the past or in the future of plotting and just come back to this present moment because this present moment is really nice we think about this breath we think about how nice we feel we think about how good this moment is wow this is okay moment <sighs> take a breath and just relax and be here now so those are the kind of wholesome thoughts that we can have. And then later you could begin to recognize that that's, there's a whole lot of thoughts that would be in between. How do we determine whether those are wholesome or not? The actual answer is, is that maybe yes, and then maybe no. The same statement can be both wholesome and unwholesome, depending upon the situation. All right. And so... What we can say then is is that uh, we can have a thought and it be wholesome, and then we have it again and it's wholesome, and by the third time that we have it, it's beginning to rot, and by the nineteenth time, it is definitely unwholesome, and it's the same thought. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like maybe the thought is to go to the bank. Okay, I registered now. I'm not going to go to the bank. Forget about it. But if I say, oh, I've got to go to the bank. Oh, I've got to go to the bank. Oh, I've got to go to the bank, and I'm not going to the bank. Not today. But I got to go tomorrow. And so I work myself into thinking about I got to go to the bank. I got to go to the bank. Tomorrow morning I wake up and I might have forgotten about going to the bank. <laughs> but yesterday I was all over that bank. Right? Have to so, be, yeah. right. So one thought about it is wholesome. But over and over and over again, and now it becomes unwholesome because it's not going anywhere. And we wind up feeling bad. We get a need. Oh, I've got to go to the bank. Every time we think about going to the bank, the bank's more important. So here's another point about that, and that is what is really important. There's only really one thing. I'll cut to the chase. The really one important thing is to stay alive, knowing that that's temporary. So long as you're still alive, and we need to congratulate ourselves. Here you are at this stage, right here, right now, no matter how much crap that you've gone through, no matter how many mistakes, how many disasters, you're still alive. Here you are. Congratulations. You survived. <laughs> Look how many people clutch themselves to death, like joining the Russian army or something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're really, really alive. So... If we understand that that's important, the next point is to say, but you're going to be dead in five minutes <laughs> if you don't breathe. Sure. You're going to be dead in five minutes. I mean, sex can wait for years. Food can wait for 30 days. Water can wait for three or four days. That date with that luscious babe, May six months can wait. But this next breath, it can't wait. You've got to do it right here right now over and over and over again which then means that your life depends upon the breath which makes it the breathing important 
Sure. And yet nobody's ever taught that breathing is important. And we just kind of forget about it. There are no hardly ever any breathing classes. The only breathing classes you'll find are in certain military situations, sometimes at the gym, uh, and sometimes in the music class. But nobody is ever taught about breathing in the way of life giving. And we need to keep remembering that we're taking this breath because it's life-giving. And by taking a correct breath, it really energizes and vitalizes us. And we feel good. That one of the reasons why we feel tired is generally because people are not breathing well. Sure. And so putting our focus on the breathing and the well-being that the breathing brings. And we feel safe. And we feel secure and we feel comfortable and we feel satisfied. Why do we feel this? Is because we talked ourselves into it by the gladdening of the mind and changing the focus out of the past and all of the unwholesome stuff and out of the future into the present moment of, wow, this is nice. Just being alive and enjoying this sensory input and sure. just being in the present moment is very very healthy okay so now we're talking about eightfold noble path again to remember to look and to make a change which means to come out of the past into the present moment and we do that over and over and over and over again and as we do we begin to develop the confidence that we can do this if i can change this unwholesome thought then i can change another one sometime if I remember. And as we develop this skill, these three skills that run and circle around each other, which is sati, ditti, and virya, right view, right effort, and right investigation, right sati, right remembering, runs three, and that they help each other. When the sati is strong, there's not so much effort. Sure. Effort in the beginning is hard because the student already has the mentality of this is hard. Meditation is hard. It's valuable, it's worth doing, but it's hard. This is how people get started. But once we develop it to the point of recognizing that, yeah, I thought it was hard. Guess what? I still can do it. It takes the effort, but I can do it. And that builds then on and on and on to regain confidence that we can, in fact, clean out the mind. That's where the Samasankapa and the Shraddha come in. And so now we have safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, and we're adding this new ingredient, the uh, attitude of success. Now, in the Pali, this is called the pity, the sukha and the pity. The sukha is safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. And then the sukha uh, turns into, for a short time, the pity of can do. We have the same kind of feeling and elation that the football uh, star has when he makes a touchdown at the uh, important World Cup or something game. The Rose Bowl or whatever, and he makes a big touchdown and he's very happy for a short time. Everybody on his side, they scream and shout, they stand up and cheer and all of that. 
that's the exhilaration that we get from the success of having done that touchdown. But look, many of those people paid $100 to get into that football game so that they could do that three or four times in two hours when you can sit there on your cushion and get that same feeling free of charge So by knowing that it's you that can change your own mind, that that's the real mountain that needs to be climbed is the mountain of your own mind. Imagine how good somebody would feel when they crawl, uh, when they climb Mount Everest. Wow, they made it absolutely to the top. Many people die along the way, but I've made it to the top. Guess how long the guy's going to stand at the top of Mount Everest? <laughs> Never thought about that. How long is fun? Yeah, you're not going to stay there very long. You're not, certainly not going to spend the night up there. <laughs> it gets cold. <laughs> it's cold enough in the daytime, but he's not going to stay. So you mentioned right. on the cushion. So would you recommend that the right practice is doing this every time the opportunity arises, but also setting aside periods of time to more formally meditate type of deal? I, actually, there is a danger in uh, the way that people practice when they uh, have the attitude that they should do this all the time. The way that I teach is about to do it when you remember to do it and congratulate yourself that you did remember to do it rather than fussing at yourself because you haven't done it for the past three hours or something like that. Sure. Okay. Uh, and so it's not an all the time function, but it is a good idea to sit down intentionally we can go even so far as to say lightly formally, a formal sitting, but they're not going to be an hour long the way that many people teach, but rather do it several times a day for a short period of time. Let us say six times a day for 10 minutes. And for that 10 minutes, you're going to get yourself into a really nice state. You're going to intentionally, here's the way of saying it. You have spent your whole Year, your whole many lives, uh, uh, many, many years, talking yourself into feeling bad because that's what our society teaches us to do. And so we've been teaching ourselves, talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time for 10 minutes to talk yourself into feeling good. Now the question is, how good can you feel? The answer to that is, give it a go. Figure it out. How, how good can you feel? Can you feel good enough that the way that you feel right now is good enough? Sure. Satisfying. Sure. Right. That's what we're looking for is satisfaction. That I've got enough. I don't need to know all the information about Buddhism, just enough to feel satisfied. So it goes beyond focusing on the breath, that almost formal sit. It it goes into actively trying to develop satisfaction. Well, the Satipatthana has actually got all four. The Anapanasati is built upon the Satipatthana, which means that we have to take some moments, some mind moments for the body, some mind moments for the feelings, some mind moments for the states of mind and the activities of the mind, and some mind moments on the thoughts or the, uh, the actual objects of the mind. Now this Satipatthana that the Buddha is working with is actually the physical body 
as it's manifest, but he got it internally because in the old days, the four elements were known uh, throughout antiquity, India and, and China and uh, Korea and the Greeks, they all had solid, liquid, uh, fire and smoke or the smoke of the air. And then the fire is the mind itself. And the, and so the uh, the content of the mind, you can see that uh, the mind is like fire bound or unbound. So the mind actually can, uh, the various mental states we can look at is, is our fire smothered? Is our fire being drenched? Is our fire being fed with correct fuel? Uh, can our fire get good air? Can we really grow this fire? Can we get the mind sharp? Or is it going to be dull? If it's dull, that means it probably doesn't have enough air. So let's pump some air into it. Let's take some breathing and go. Okay, so these four things work together, and the objects are going to float around. In fact, the Buddha talks about it specifically to change the objects. The first object is to wake up and then investigate the mind and then gladden the mind and then do the breathing. Now, when we get the mind gladdened, and the breathing working together. In fact, the, it, both of them have to do with control. You cannot control the breathing unless you're controlling the mind to control sure. the breathing. That makes sense. Once we've got the mind and the breathing under control, now we can work the two of them to control how we feel. I got you. And we can, we can if we're getting the body relaxed, getting it energized, and, and having thoughts of safe and secure and comfortable and satisfied, we can begin to feel that way. We can begin to feel safe and secure and comfortable and satisfied because we're talking ourselves into feeling safe, secure, and satisfied yeah. in this moment because right now there is no boogeyman. Right now I am not standing in, uh, in judgment in the face of God. Right now everything's okay. Right now, the floor is still solid. I'm not falling down through it. Okay, so we keep looking at right now, everything's okay. Sure. Keep coming back to right now, right now. And pretty soon, then, we develop the attitude of, I can handle things so that they're okay, just like they are right now. So that anything that comes by, I can handle it then. No matter... In fact, in Sutra number 48, the first stage or the first knowledge is the knowledge that the student knows that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, he can clean it out and come back to the present moment and see the reality, to see the truth. And then the Buddha says this first knowledge is the first step on the Eightfold Noble Path. It is the first step of enlightenment. It's the first step of nobility. It says this is noble. This is super mundane. It is above the world. And it is not held by ordinary people. This attitude of I can do it. I can handle it. Okay. It's not false bravado. It's uh, confidence based upon repetitive behavior. Sure. Yep. Seeing results. Mm -hmm. It's like the maestro who can walk out on the stage with a guitar 
and just have fun and play. And, but the guy who doesn't know how to play the guitar very well, but he's trying to prove to the audience that he can play, it's a different performance. They may play the same song. But one guy's got the confidence that he can piddle with it and he can play it and he can bend it and he can do anything he wants to with it. And the other guy's worried, can he actually get through it? Yeah. Attitude makes a difference. Right. This is the attitude that we have, the attitude of confidence. And so this is part of the Eightfold Noble Path. And it's that confidence plus the skill of unremitting mindfulness, keep coming back and coming back, that confidence. That's what unifies the mind so that the mind becomes integrated and whole. And the mind is integrated and whole means that we don't tell lies. We don't, we're not confused. Uh, we don't steal things because if the mind is whole and integrated, then we're satisfied. And if we're satisfied and noble minded, then we don't want anything. And if we don't want anything, then we're unlikely to go kill somebody to get it or steal it. Because I don't want anything. I'm already unified. I'm whole. I've got everything that's needed. The samadhi is there. But uh, breaking of the precepts, doubt, worry, lies, harming people, all of that is done when the mind is not organized, when it's not unified, that it's missing something, like your heart's desire. When the heart doesn't desire anything, then you're okay. Sure. So the precepts, that's the five precepts you're talking about, right? Well, I use the word precept. Basically, we're talking about right speech, right behavior, and right at uh, and right livelihood. Sure. That's the way that it's described in the, uh, uh, the sutta on the Eightfold Noble Path, that when the mind is noble, our behavior is noble. When our mind is noble, then our uh, business is noble. Gotcha. And uh, you can see that most of Buddhism, like Christianity, is taught upside down. Oh, you got to follow the rules so that you can suck up to the karma machine or suck up to God, but you've got to go follow all the rules first. That's kind of how it's uh, presented in some contexts, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's ordinary Buddhism. That's why uh, uh, Achan uh, Po has requested, let's not talk about it uh, in the ordinary sense. Let's talk about it in the noble sense. The noble sense is, is that morality is kind of the ultimate outcome as opposed to the starting point. Sure, yep. So the Eightfold Noble Path, uh, you could go so far then as to say there's two paths. There's the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, and then there's the Eightfold Noble Path of the nobles. And the question is, how long does it take to move out of the ordinary path into the Noble Path? And some people, it takes them their whole lives, they'll still stay Buddhist, but they won't get much value out of it because they're still at the ordinary. So the ordinary path has the quality of Sila Samati Panya. You have to uh, purify your behavior, then you purify the mind, and then you purify your uh, your attitude, or the right noble, uh, how to say it. Uh, sila samati panya is um, sila or behavior, followed by getting the mind 
purified. So you purify the behavior, purify the mind, and then purify your attitude or your vision. That's the ordinary way. We start with the, with the purification of the vision immediately. We go immediately into right, noble view. And because of that, we start with wisdom. Sure. We start with right, noble view. We start with, uh, uh, then with that, we go from wisdom to samadhi, the mind that's collected together. And the natural outcome of that is sila. So we practice panya samadhi sila rather than sila samadhi panya. Sure. Yep. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. This is the noble method because this is the method that gives the confidence, the winner. The Buddha was known as a lion. Interesting. He's known as a bull. Which it's funny in the West that is not that is not the that's not the marketing spin for the lion at all. It's something opposite almost. Well, if, if they turn you into a lion, then they just can't control you and get no value fit out of you at all. You're just going to go out and do your own war thing. Yeah. No, they want to keep you so that they can control you. Yeah. And that's what religion is all about. Religion is a binding together. The actual uh, Latin of the word religious means to bind together. You know, I, I read somewhere that that the Buddha didn't intend to start a religion. And I think as we talk about this, that makes more sense to me. Yeah, the religion came centuries after the Buddha. Sure. Then, in fact, we know when it happened. It happened in the time of Ashok. Basically, what happened is Ashok gave so much um, uh, free stuff. He built monasteries. He gave robes out. So many people joined the Sangha that the old country of the Sangha, the nobles, there were too many students to teach. And so all of these new monks just started teaching each other all of the stuff that they already believed. But because they were wearing the Buddhist monk's robe, now all of the stuff that they already believed is now Buddhism. It's mostly just Hindu. It's mostly just garbage. Sure. Most of Buddhism is garbage, but the people who love the word, I don't like to use the word, or let us say I don't use the word to call myself Buddhist. I'm not a Buddhist. Because those people who call themselves Buddhist already own that word, and I don't want to use the word to say I'm Buddhist because that means that I'm like them, and not a chance. That's Yeah, I struggle so, with that too. When people ask, I'm like, it's hard to answer without a two-hour response, you know. Well, I go for the noble teachings of the Buddha as opposed to Buddhism. Buddhism is the ignoble teachings of all kinds of people that are calling it the noble teachings of the Buddha. But the actual noble teachings of the Buddha is very small. He only taught one thing. Yeah. You know what that is? He only Dukkha taught one thing. Dukkha Naroda. Dukkha Naroda. That's what we're talking about. Take that unwholesome thought and throw it out. Dukkha Naroda, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's your bumper sticker. Duke and Naroda, that thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Uh, 
So I think that we've come to a place where we can come back and do a bit of review about that if the Buddha only teaches one thing, then things like the five faculties, the seven factors of enlightenment, the Eightfold Noble Path, and all of that kind of stuff makes it look really complicated until you recognize that it's a before, during, and after. The before is the Eightfold Noble Path. Go do it. The, 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 uh, the now we're doing it in between is the balancing the faculties. And then the end result is the factors of enlightenment or it's the seven Sambhajana, the factors of awakening, because the operative there is unremitting. It keeps coming back and coming back because we developed it as a skill. Sure. And we've got all of those skills, all five of those skills. The samadhi, getting the mind together, the uh, uh, the confidence, the uh, investigation, uh, the uh, sati, and the effort that it takes to change. And so that's all there really is to the uh, uh, to the teaching of the Buddha. These five things, and in context, it's all there is to it. Yeah. But we have to keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Imagine that it's like a bucket and that the faucet just drips. What is a drop? It's the moment of sati. You drop a little sati into the bucket. Now, the bucket's been sitting out in the sun, so when the first drop and two or three hits, they just melt away and you don't see any results at all. Sure. But after a while, it begins to have some water collected in the bottom of the bucket. You keep uh, the bucket there and the drips keep happening and pretty soon, slowly over time, the bucket begins to fill up and you can actually hear the frequency of the bucket change until when the bucket gets filled, then it's going to overflow. And that's where the metta comes in. Is you've got so much joy that it just overflows. Jesus. Yeah. The drips get closer together. Mm-hmm. Well, the more often we practice, the drips get closer together. That's right. And so let's go practice for about 10 minutes and get it going. If you say, oh, I'm going to sit for an hour, then that means that you probably use 10 minutes of it. And the rest of it, you're just waiting for the bell to ring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like school. <laughs> yeah, it's like school. Our attention span is not that long, so let's do something within our attention span to get really, really good benefit out of it and do that. So the first time that I would recommend is just when you wake up in the morning, start doing Anapanasati, get an experience of the body, telling you things like, wow, today is going to be a really great day. Everything is going to go just fine. We're going to be all right. There's nothing to worry about today. Everything is great. And then when we go to bed at night, we can spend 10 minutes there saying, I don't have to go to sleep right now. I can just lay here and just enjoy the night. Wow, it feels so good to lay down and just relax. Sure. And then the sleep will come easy enough. But if we're worried, it won't. Awesome. Well, this has been super helpful. Well, go practice. Go enjoy yourself. Sounds good. Thank you. Hi, right, Michael. Much. Well, we'll see you. In, we'll see you in a few days, then. Sounds good. Thank you. Uh huh.
拜拜。